words that we just sang together, at least half of you sang, the rest of you listen to us sing, uh, but the words we just sang together are straight from the story of God. In Re- Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 11, it says, and they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the power of their testimony. Um, this idea, this image of the lamb is unique in that we talked about this series images are times when God gives us images, pictures, things that we are familiar with that can help us understand who he is. Uh, we have a hard time understanding who God is, what he's like. So God knows that. He knows our problems and struggles in that. So he gives us images and pictures along the way. We looked at the picture of a wedding. We looked at the picture of a vine. And, and we're going to look today at the picture of the lamb. But that's unique for the people who were originally receiving the image. That's, it's not so much for us. We, we don't see a lot of lambs, and if we do, um, they're at a petting zoo or they're on some farm that we drive by. We're, we're not familiar really with the lambs. Now, I have a Labradoodle that looks like a little white lamb, but other than that, that's as close really to hanging out with lambs as I ever get. So we're not really familiar with that image. But for those who originally received the message and for those who were originally reading the book, their letters in the book of Revelation, uh, that made a lot of sense to them. Like, they, they got that. So for us to really grasp the power of the image of the lamb, we really need to go back to be able to catch up and understand what's going on. And when I say go back, I mean go way, way back to the very beginning. In the beginning, when God first created mankind, we have a woman, we have a man, we have Adam and Eve there, and they're in this place that's really all theirs. They're experiencing a creation that is in many ways, a gift. God said, enjoy it. Enjoy everything here. Enjoy what I've made. It's all really, really good. Now, I've made you, and you're special, and you're different. I made you in my image, but all of this creation, I I look down, and I see glimpses of my glory. This is a great thing. Just enjoy it. But he also helped them understand that they were going to be relating to him in a relationship built on trust. And, and part of that trust meant them trusting him when he said, there's only one thing that I ask you to do. I want you to stay away from this one particular tree in the garden. Now, we look at that, and even now, as an adult, I look back and think, that's, that's an odd part of the story. But they needed to understand that they were created to worship him, and worship is really trust. God, I trust that you want what's best for me, so I give you all that I am. I trust that you are going to watch out for my needs. I trust that you know me better than I know myself. I trust that you're in control and you're in the authority. I trust that you're going to provide for me. So if there's something that you ask me to do, I'm going to do it. We have a relationship built on trust. And God said, I want you to just stay away from this one particular area of creation. But he didn't say, stay away from it or I'll be mad. Stay away from it or I'm going to punish you. Stay away or you're going to experience something you don't understand now. It's called guilt or shame or nothing like that. He said, stay away from it or you're going to die. If you eat from it, you're going to die. Now, what, why die? Because for them, they needed to grasp the fact that if they chose to take this destructive, disobedient, dysfunctional path, that the balance, the scales were going to be off, that God is a God of love, but God is also a just God. And there's going to be justice, and there would be a debt at that point if they chose to step into a place that he had said, don't step, to step outside of a lane that he had said, don't step out of. If they did that, there was a problem. The relationship was off. The scales were no longer balanced. And God said, something has got to happen. 
we've got to balance the scales again. I'm a God of justice, and I will have just, just as much as I am a God of love, and I will love you. So God responded to them by literally creating a covering for them. They felt guilt and shame, just like you and I do when we mess up, when we know without a doubt we're doing something or we're in the middle of a pattern of living that's just not honorable to God. It just makes us feel kind of, ugh. We want to hide and get away, and God knew that. He saw that in his people, and he had compassion because he's still a God of love, even though he's a God of justice. And he created coverings for them, the Bible says. And he's not just getting grass together and creating something. He's not out in a field creating something made out of cotton. or No, he literally took skins and made a covering for them. So he was willing to hurt his creation, if you will, to make a sacrifice in order to cover his people. Now, as Adam and Eve grew in their relationship with him, they began to understand this idea of worship and sacrifice and how it went together because creation was no longer perfect. They messed it up. They didn't just mess up their relationship with God. It affected all of creation. So they created this dysfunction and disobedience in in their relationship with God and in God's relationship with the rest of creation. They began to figure out how to worship, and they understood that, and they took God's cues, and they worshiped him, and they offered sacrifices from this point forward. Now, they also had children, and they had Cain, they had Abel, they had Seth, they had other children, but Cain and Abel were the first two, and they knew, they learned from mom and dad that worship's really important. And one day, when it was time to worship, Abel went to church, and he brought a sacrifice, said, here, God, here's a sacrifice for my sin, for my mistakes, my problem. I offer this up to you. Cain came to church and decided to bring a sacrifice, but he didn't bring an animal sacrifice. He brought some fruit. So imagine him just coming to church. Oh, forgot my lamb. So I just, you know, I'm going to pick up something else. So he's grabbing fruit, whatever he can find along the way, and he brings it to God to worship. And God rejects Cain's worship. He says, you're here at church. You're offering me something, but it's not what I ask. It's not what I want, and I know your heart behind all this. You're being cheap with me, and that's not what I ask of you. So he rejected Cain's sacrifice. He accepted Abel's, though, which is a little subtle reminder to me that we can all come to church, but God's not receiving all of our worship. Um, In fact, I can come here twice, in fact, on Sundays and preach my heart out, but it doesn't mean that I've actually worshiped and God's accepted anything here it's more than what I'm doing. It's what is behind what I'm doing. It's the heart behind it, and God's able to look beyond me and see who I really am. So they came to worship. God accepted one act of worship. He did not accept the other. Cain got so mad that God accepted Abel's worship and not his. He literally killed his brother. So this is getting serious. People killed each other over worship and over worshiping correctly. So what is the big deal about the sacrifice? Well, in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11... God gives us an understanding and says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, when God said this, God gave this, it was years after Cain and Abel were around, but we get the principle here. He said, The life of the creature is in that blood, and this is an atonement. This is a way to balance the scales again. Because what you did when you disobeyed me was an act of death, of defiance, and there needs to be life. So here is how I'm going to allow those scales to be balanced again. So there's a life that's offered for the death, which is the act that we commit, and we still commit when we uh, know what to do, we don't do it, or we know what not to do, and we do it anyway. 
So that's why that's an important part of worship, this idea of the lamb and the sacrifice. And there are dozens of stories of lambs in the story of God. We could look at sacrifices, and we look at, could look at missed sacrifices, and we could look at all sorts of different moments where the lambs show up. But there's one story that is above all the other stories in, in priority and in importance to the people of God. And it took place in Exodus chapter 12. God's people are at a part and stage in their journey where they're actually slaves, and they're not even in Israel. They're not where they're supposed to be. They're not in the promised land. They're in Egypt, in a different country, as slaves. And they've been there for a long, long time. They're being oppressed. They're being put down. They're being kept out. They're not allowed to live in freedom. So God goes to a man named Moses, and he says, I want you to go to the ruler of Egypt, and I want you to tell him, those are not your people. Those are my people, and let them go. So Moses goes to the leader eventually. He gets there, and he shows up and says, God has told me to tell you, let my people go. And of course, the ruler of Egypt basically said, who is God? Who is your God? What are you talking about? He says, those people belong to the God, the God the people, the Hebrew people worship, let them go. And so there was some back and forth, and at times it looked like he might, but then he changed his mind again. There was a lot of struggle. There were plagues involved, and if you're familiar with that story, you've heard of some of those plagues. It's pretty tough stuff. But eventually, God brings about freedom. He reaches into the people's lives and says, okay, I've got one more thing to do, and this is going to be the one that works, so pack your bags and get ready. I'm getting ready to move you out. And this is what he tells the people through Moses. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, he says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to make a lamb or take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with some bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, this is the most important story of all the stories to the people of Israel. Like, this is the one, the Passover story. God said there was a time when the leader of Egypt wanted all the firstborn sons of Hebrew people to be killed, to be taken away, everybody under two years old. And listen, we survived. I sustained you. Well, now the same thing is about to happen to them. But if you'll take the lamb, if you'll make the sacrifice, and you'll put the blood over the doorpost, when death comes, it will pass over you. It will not hurt you. You'll be protected under the blood of those lambs. That became what we know as the Passover celebration, the Passover feast. And they would continue to go back every year to celebrate this Passover. They would have a Passover meal together. They would slaughter lambs. They would slaughter. They would have these sacrifices. They would make all these offerings up to God. And they would celebrate this one time when death passed over and did not touch or did not harm the people of God. And ultimately, they found freedom. Now, the fact that they do this every year, the fact that it was done every year for thousands of years gives us a little insight into the limitations, the limitations of these lamb offerings. Because if it had worked, if it had been 
if they had been able to say, well, look, we did it and now we're fine, they would not have done it over and over again. But literally hundreds of thousands of lambs and goats and sheep and cows and all sorts of animals have been sacrificed through the years. Tens of thousands of gallons of blood have been spilled. Like it's happened over and over again. And the limitations of the lamb are pretty obvious. One, it's outward. It's affecting the outside, but it never took care of the core problem on the inside. I can work and work and work to modify my behavior, but if I never let God get a hold of my heart, nothing is really different about me. And we do this all the time. We cover up what's really on the inside. Some of you are heartbroken now over things that are happening around you. Some of you are incredibly disappointed at where you are in life and what's going on and what is not going on. But you hide it with your smile, you hide it with your clothes, you hide it with new clothes, you hide it with product, and you hide it with smiles and humor, and you hide it with jokes, you hide it with whatever you can, and on the inside, you are dying. And you know that, but you feel like, if I can just cover up, if I can just put out a certain face, if I can just pretend a certain way, people won't know, and they do, but we, we try to hide. And all of these sacrifices made them feel better for a moment, but it was just outward. Because ultimately, the other limitation is that it was temporary. They were going to have to do it again. They were going to have to come back to the same place. And if they're like you and me, which they probably were, they're coming on behalf of the same sins, with the same problems, the same struggles, year after year after year. Like, here I am again, God. You know, the nine things I always do. I say I'll never do again. Here they are, and here's what the sacrifice is for. Imagine if it was like that for us. Like, you came in today just to kind of get the bleh off, just to wash it off. You've got your bitterness and your complaining and your bickering and your lust and your pride and your jealousy. Just get all that off. As we like to sometimes kid around, get your Jesus on. You come in on Sunday morning and then you leave. But what if we viewed it this way? You know, you think, I got it all off. I'm clean. I'm ready to go. You get in the car. You get to the four-way stop and someone almost cuts you over and you go, son of a... Then you, oh, turn it around. Got to go back and here, back and here again. I'm sorry, God. You heard what I said. When I was, Let me start this over again. Get in... Imagine how many times we just all be in circles, coming around and around, going, here, back again. What's it this time? Same as last time. I just, I just, I struggle when I drive, and I'm doing it again, or when I go out to eat, or my kids, or my wife, or my girlfriend. They, same stuff over and over again. It never really took. It's temporary. It was outward, limitations to the lamb. So that's where, if we went back to catch up, that's where the people were. They got the image of a lamb. They saw lambs all the time. Every time, just about, they went to worship. They're watching some man stand up with a dagger and slice him, the neck of a lamb and blood's going. Like, it's a gross deal, and they get it. They know it. So in John chapter 1, we find a man named John the Baptist, not the guy that wrote the letter, but a different John. John the Baptist is in the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people, symbolizing this new, fresh start on life. And Jesus shows up, and he recognizes Jesus. They're actually, from an earthly perspective, they're cousins, and their, their moms were cousins. And he recognizes him, but he doesn't look up and say, look, an incredibly smart guy. Look, the teacher. Look, the healer. Look, the doctor. Look, a friend, a prophet, a preacher, a priest. No. In John 1.36, he looks up and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. So if you were there in that crowd that day when he said, behold, the Lamb of God, if it would have been me, I would have thought, with my perspective now in 2020, I would have thought, or, what year is it, 2022, I would have thought, Lamb, what you? but back during this time, living then, I get it. 
We've seen lambs. We've been making sacrifices for thousands of years. This is the only way we've been able to somehow wash off temporarily the guilt that we feel for all the stuff that we've done. And he looked up and said, look, the Lamb of God. If Jesus had just communicated with all the other images along the way and said, you know, the Prince of Peace, that would be fine. If he had said the Everlasting Father, I'm good with that. that. That makes me feel good and protected and safe and on and on. But to say he's the Lamb, that's different. That's next level. Because I know what a lamb is about. A lamb is there to give its life. A lamb is innocent. A lamb doesn't hurt anyone. Think of the last time you've ever heard of someone being attacked by a lamb. A lamb doesn't do anything. A lamb doesn't reach out and try to bite or claw. Or a lamb is a lamb. A lamb, in their perspective and in their time, a perfect lamb was just offered up as a sacrifice. So as Jesus made his way into the water, behold, the Lamb of God, that's telling us something. There are two things I want to point out that I believe it was telling them that we need to grasp today. And really, it's the root of the problem. We were not bad, needing to be good. We were dead, needing to be alive. If he had just come and said, behold, the teacher, oh, we're bad, we need to be better. So the teacher will tell us how to live. Oh, behold, the ruler, oh, he'll show us how to behave. We'll have some consequences if we mess up along the way. But the core problem, even though badness, the behavior, that was a part of it, but the core problem was not that we were bad needing to be good. We were dead needing to be alive. That's why there's a lamb, because there is a life that needs to be sacrificed because of the death that I brought in to the picture. And you and I, most of the time, just focus on our behavior. Like, well, how can I do this better? What would a good Christian do? What would a good person do? Maybe the question is not, what would a good person do here? It's, what would a resurrected person do here? Not, what would a reformed man or a reformed woman respond in this way? How would he or she act? But what would a resurrected person? What if someone was raised from the dead and given another chance? What would be the right way to handle this? That's actually the question I need to be asking myself. Not about being good, about being alive. God, why did you go to all the trouble to offer your life as a lamb sacrificed for mine so that I could do this, so that I could live this way? You had to have been giving me an opportunity to be more. So the question is not, what, how can I be good? It's how can I live? How can I live in the way that God looks down and says, that's why I saved you. That's why I resurrected you. That's why I called you out. But secondly, the other thing we, I think we find with this image of the lamb is that we were not far from God because we lacked effort. Effort, intention, that's not the issue. It's not about lacking effort. We were far from God because we lacked innocence. People have been trying for thousands and thousands of years to make things right with God, just like many of you have done. You've made promises. You've made resolutions. You've asked people to forgive you. You've written letters. You've been open. You've been honest. You put in some new boundaries in your life. You've created some behavioral modifications along the way. You've done all that stuff, but it's still just not there. And could it be that your problem is not effort? It's not that you're not making steps, that you're not intending to do more. It's that you're focusing on something that's not the real issue. The focus should be actually on what's going on. There's a life that needs to be made alive. There's innocence that we just don't have. And for them, what that meant is there were no people 
that were even qualified to offer the sacrifice, and there was no sacrifice that had what it took to cover sins once and for all. It was all outward. It was all temporary. They tried and they tried. And many of you have tried and tried to be a better person. You've tried and tried to live a life that is acceptable to God when it has nothing to do with your intention, has nothing to do with your effort. The fact that you're still separated from God is not because you haven't tried hard enough. It's because you haven't realized there is only one answer. And it's for someone to be able to come in who is worthy to offer a sacrifice and have a sacrifice that is actually completely, eternally acceptable to God. And it's just not one. There's no livestock around. There's no fruit lying on the ground. There's nothing that we can do outside of what Jesus Christ did for us. And I hope that you can see along the way, and I hope we don't lose the fact that God literally healed our hearts by breaking his own. Like that, that was his plan. That's what he fulfilled. That was his strategy. They can't fix it, so I'm going to crush myself. I'm going to break my own heart in order to repair theirs. So God literally brought his own son in as the lamb and allowed him to die for you and me. It's written this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. It was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 13, it says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? It says, how much more? If these lambs were okay for a while, how much more would a perfect sacrifice make a difference? An eternal kind of difference. And he says, that's what it was when Jesus offered himself as the lamb. So what now? If Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, if it was just once and for all, we don't have to do this anymore. Obviously, none of you brought a lamb in today and said, Pastor, if you would, cut the neck. Like, none of you did that. You knew that's not what we do. We don't need to anymore. The lamb did that for us. So how do we respond? What are we supposed to do? Are we just free to do whatever we want to do? What, what do we want? What does God want from us, rather? Well, he, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He said, I still want worship from you. I still want a sacrifice, but I don't want you to hurt yourself. I want a living sacrifice. I want every morning when you wake up, your head's on your pillow, when you open your eyes, I want you to know that I am right there giving you one more day. I want you to lay your life on the altar, saying, God, here I am. Use me as you will. I'm not worthy to be anything. I'm not worthy to accomplish anything, but because of you and through you, I'm willing to change the world if you'll just use me. Just to put yourself out there as a living sacrifice. There are often times I have to go back and look in the mirror and just say, God, help me today to live a life worthy of my calling. I don't mean as a preacher. I don't mean as, as anything ministerial. I just mean as someone who you gave life to. You gave me another chance. And I know I'll never be someone that you'll be amazed that you got in your family. I know there'll never be a time when all of heaven gathers around and God says, man, when I, I rescued Chad, I had no idea what we were getting. Like, he's amazing. Like, we're never going to have that moment. I know that. 
But I do want to live in a way that there's some part of God that just finds a little joy that he chose to give me a second chance, that he chose to breathe life into me and to give me life. Because ultimately, God gave his own son for me. And, you know, he loved me before I could love him back. He did it before I could do anything for him. But I would love for God one day to look down and say, that is why I rescued you. I, I know who you can become, and I want to see that fulfilled in your life. Let me live my life worthy of the calling. And each of you who is a follower of Jesus has been resurrected. You've been given a shot. So what do we do? How are we supposed to live when someone has given his life for us? I think the answer is pretty obvious, to give all we have back to him. I've had an opportunity through the years to be a part of different church families and different states and moved around. And one of the most unique places I've ever been in is this place in Clarksville. And about 10 or 12 years ago, um, on a Sunday morning before I was getting ready to, uh, to preach, I was in the lobby hanging out at the church where I was and and we had a really cool parking team, and they would, you know, hang out and smile and wave and good morning, welcome to church, and that kind of thing. And I remember one day there was a conversation happening, and I could see some men talking, and I thought, man, that's next level, you know, welcoming. I think it's a brand new family. I'm surprised that they're having that much time to talk. And as I looked down the hall of the lobby, I saw a family come in. And there was a man, he had a cane. A young guy, he was younger than me, and he had a cane, and he was walking in with his wife and looked like a couple of kids, and, and their family was coming in. He walked up, and he said, good morning. I said, hello, and then one of our parking team members came up with them. I said, hey, what's going on? And we began to talk for a second, and he shared that he had just gotten out of rehabilitation. He had been in Texas for a while. Um, while he was overseas, while he was active duty, um, his unit uh, was, was hit, and uh, it was a pretty devastating hit, and it was one of those, am I going to make it out alive type moments. And obviously, he made it out alive, but he had to spend a lot of months in rehab. And, and when he got out, he said, I, I knew that I needed to make some changes, that God had spared my life, and I owed it to him to figure this thing out. And he had some faith from years back as a kid, but had not really put it into practice. So when he got out of the hospital in Houston and flew back to Campbell, he told her, he said, we're going to go to church. We're going to find a place to go. And they just happened to pray about things and look online and find a place. They didn't have a church. They had been there here for years, but just didn't have a place. So they got up that Sunday morning, got their kids ready, a little nervous about how that was going to unfold. Church had not been their thing for a while. And they chose to come to the church where I was. And they came into the place. And he said, here's my story. He said, while I was there and after our unit was hit, I was lying there on the ground in a pool of my own blood, wondering if my uh, fellow soldiers had made it out. It was, there was a lot of noise. We couldn't hear a whole lot, but we could hear a lot of echoing and sound and muffled. It was just a big mess. And he said, then after about five or ten minutes, I looked up, and there was another man standing above me, another soldier. He reached down his hand. He touched mine. He said, we're going to get you out of this, brother. You're going to be okay. And he stayed with me until the helicopter came and they was able to put me on and get me, you know, sent off. And they were able to work on me and send me back to the United States. And I was, you know, recovered in the whole bit. He said, that moment, in that moment, God saved my life. And he said, I realized I needed to get my life in order. He kind of told me that backstory of church. He said, so we're here today. We parked our car. We got out. We started making our way towards the building, and I looked up, and there was a parking attendant that smiled and waved and said, good morning. He didn't know who I was. 
He said, for a moment, I thought, what? Surely not. And I looked again. He said, that was the last man I saw before they got me on the helicopter and got me off to safety. That man held my hand and basically saved my life. And then I got to the point where I was ready to thank God for saving me by living for him now. And I get my family ready for church, and he's the first person I see in the parking lot. And there were tears and chills and, every, you know, the whole thing happened in there. And I'll never forget that moment. The parking attendant was one of my best friends, or is, and uh, we've talked a lot about that since. And he said one of the coolest things about that moment for him was how that small little moment actually changed that guy's spiritual trajectory. How at that time, he's just going to help his brother out. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what kind of guy he is. He's just going to help a man out. But to know that in that moment, that man chose, that moment forward rather, to live a kind of life that was worthy of being saved just did everything for him. And I know we'll never, most of us, experience anything that traumatic. Some of you men and women have. Most of us will not. But truthfully, every single morning that God allows me to wake up again, I look up. And I, there's not a ceiling fan there. There is a Savior reaching down saying, good morning. I'm the one that saved your life. Now, offer your life, offer your, everything you have as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to me. I love you. And you weren't saved for no reason. The Lamb of God means more than a teacher, a friend, a pastor, a preacher. It's a sacrifice for our lives. And we're going to celebrate that with communion now. So I'm going to ask the, if the ushers would take your communion baskets and make sure that everyone in your area has had an opportunity to have one of those now. And once you have one of those communion cups, you can go ahead and um, peel back the, the top layer and you'll find the bread there. Um, and then underneath you'll find uh, the juice as well. But this really is an extension of the Passover meal. Jesus, just like everyone else who lived in that area in that time, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his family. They got together every year at the same time during Passover, and they celebrated the meal. Then when Jesus was 30 years old, he connected with a different group of people. He selected 12 men to be his followers, his disciples. And they, along with some of the others that he traveled with, they celebrated Passover together. And then when Jesus was 33 years old, they were preparing to celebrate the Passover meal together, just as they always had. What they did not realize is what this was last, the last Passover meal that Jesus was going to have with them. He gathered them together, and they met in a place, and he said, okay, as we prepare to have this meal together, here's what I want you to know, that this is actually going to be a new agreement, a new covenant. And the blood that we're going to eat is going to represent my body that I'm giving for you. And the wine that we're going to drink, the juice that we're going to drink, is actually going to represent my blood that's going to be given for you. And on that particular Passover weekend, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was brought in, and in many ways, it was God bringing in his own son, saying, this Passover is going to be different. 
All the other Passovers, you provided a lamb. The lamb was sacrificed. On this Passover, I'm going to provide the lamb. And I'm going to bring my son in. And my son is going to take the place of all the other lambs. And this is going to be the last lamb, the lamb of God. We're going to take this together in just a moment. But before we do, don't ask this hardly ever of you. And if you've been here long, you know that. I just ask, if you will, just to close your eyes for a moment. I know it's different uh, and difficult at times to stay focused, and we have a lot of distractions in front of us, and it's hard to, uh, hard to connect. But I want us just to close our eyes, and I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 53 to you, and then we're going to take communion together. But I want to read this passage, uh, which is ultimately a picture that happened years and years ahead of time of the Passover lamb. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the sins of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So we now, in light of this, take this bread and eat it in remembrance of him, the Lamb of God. juice was the blood of the new covenant that he gave in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you for the chance we have to come to your table to celebrate you, to come with thanks and gratitude for the offering of the lamb, not just another sacrifice, but the lamb of God. Thank you for taking away our sins. Father, for the men and women in this place who have hid behind songs and hid behind Sunday attendance and hid behind all sorts of things to mask the fact that they've never surrendered their lives to you. I pray that today would be the day we stop playing games and we get real with you, open up our lives and say, Jesus, I surrender. I accept your sacrifice as an offering for my sin. Father, we thank you for loving us, for the gift of salvation. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Lamb of God.